A couple of years ago, in 2016, the popular physicist Neil deGrasse Tyson tweeted something that resulted in a, I guess what they call a tweet storm of both in support and ridicule for what he tweeted. And, and the tweet just said this, Earth needs a virtual country, rationalia, with a one-line constitution. All policies shall be based on the weight of evidence. Now, the implications of this, of course, was if we can just get rid of religion and dogma and traditional morality, we could create a better society based on science and reason alone. Now, of course, it sounds really good on the surface. Of course, we, who doesn't like science? Who doesn't like reason? But the more you think about it, the more naive it actually becomes. The first problem is, is that there actually have been societies that have claimed to base their morality or to base their laws on reason and science, and the results have been disastrous. Take Nazi Germany, for instance. The practice of eugenics where people are considered less valuable to society and they would be eliminated because of that are based on evolutionary scientific ideas, or at least so they say. Of course, the second problem with it is, is that philosophers and scientists for years, for hundreds of years, have been trying to come up with an explanation for morality that isn't based on things like religion and dogma, but on science and empirical data, and have largely come up empty. And the final problem is, is that it ignores the fact that even facts need interpretation. There's no such thing as a, a simple fact. And so when we look at all of those things, what we find is that hashtag rationalia is not going to solve anything. Uh, a while back, I watched a TED Talk by a scientist named... Paul Zak, and it's been watched 1.4 million times. My guess is, is that if you're a TED Talk watcher, you might have watched it. Um, and basically, what he, what he said was that he gushed about these scientific findings of a brain chemical called oxytocin. Have you guys heard of this before? You watched that TED Talk before? Uh, people actually, for a long time, were calling it the moral molecule because studies purported to show that if you could put that molecule in a nasal spray and spray it up someone's nose, it increased their trust and bonding and led to pro-social behavior. In fact, during the TED Talk, he said this. He, he asked this question. He said, am I actually saying that a single molecule, and by the way, a chemical substance that scientists like me can manipulate in the lab, accounts for why some people give freely of themselves and others are cold-hearted, why some people cheat and steal and others you can trust with your life, why some husbands are more faithful than others, and by the way, why women tend to be more generous and nicer than men? In a word, yes. In other words, he believed that, mora that morality was largely determined by our biology, by chemical substances. Now, scientists were so excited about these findings, of course, they immediately sent them to the media, and the media ran with them like they, like they tend to do. Um, but these studies recently have actually fallen on hard times. The, the man who originally published the, the first set of studies went back and checked his work. He, he re-examined those studies and found them to be faulty. And in fact, they did more new studies and failed to replic replicate the the. Uh, findings that they had from the earlier studies. Now, before you say this is a terrible thing, actually, this is a good thing because this is the way science is supposed to work. You're supposed to be able to go back to be meticulous and careful, but the original studies were not. And yet, 
Because the media ran with it, there's still this idea that oxytocin is the moral molecule. You'll still hear that being told. Now, these are just a couple of examples of what I like to call the gospel of science and technology. And we're starting a series right now, uh, today, that we are calling What is the Good News? And we're going to be talking about some of the things that our society considers to be good news. And, and, and the reason that we're talking about this is that, of course, at the heart of Jesus' teaching, at the heart of our faith, is what we call the gospel, which is, of course, good news, the good news of Jesus. And there's a lot of ways you can articulate this from a biblical standpoint, but at its heart, it's the basic story of God creating human beings in his image. And because of that, we have unsurpassable worth. But because of sin, we ended up compromised that we are not now what God intended us to be. But that despite our sin, God pursued us in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem us, to restore creation back to what it was through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the good news for us is that God is saving the world, redeeming the world, and putting creation right. Now for Christians, this is our overarching story. This is the thing that we believe is good news, but every day our society presents us with alternative gospels. In fact, many people have set the gospel of Jesus by the wayside. Some Christians even have set the gospel of Jesus by the wayside and have latched on to some other gospels. And over the course of this series, we're going to be talking about things like the prosperity gospel, the gospel of, uh, according to Hugh Hefner, the, pros- uh, the, uh, the gospel of marriage and family, and the gospel of no gospel. And as you might have guessed, this week we're talking about the gospel of science and technology. Now, what I don't want you to do today is to come away thinking that I am anti-science, or as they say, a science denier. Uh, For instance, I'm absolutely fascinated with studies like the one that they did on oxytocin, and I have a great deal of admiration for the scientist who is willing to go back and recheck his work and in the end say he was wrong. And the reason I have so much admiration is that you don't get kudos, you don't get grants for finding uh, false theories. Okay, it's not as exciting, but yet he was willing to do it because he wanted to have some integrity. He wanted to say, no, the way science is done is we want to come to true beliefs, not just to find something that looks good in the paper. It's good science. The problem with it only came when the scientists were so eager to find something that they didn't allow themselves to actually do good science. And actually, science and technology have done a huge amount of good in our world. Going back very early on, science and technology, even in their primitive forms, have given us some great things. Just going all the way back to something like the wheel. You know, the wheel is is technology that made life better for people. Now, modern medical advancements have alleviated a great deal of suffering, have raised the standard of living, and raised life expectancy for so many people. Because of the science of flight, I was able to go and visit my parents in Arizona a couple weeks ago, and it only took me like two and a half hours to get there, which is amazing when you think about it. See, science has been an incredible boost to humanity, and I'm thankful for it, and I suspect that you are too. Now, in a sense, you could say that science and technology are good news. And so I want you to want to make sure, first of all, that you hear this, that I am not denigrating science in any, other, in, in any way. 
as a way to understand the natural world, as a way to be able to use things in our natural world, to be able to make life better, it is great. But as a way to explain everything that exists, it is inadequate. It's a great tool, but not a very good savior. Well, if you're not already there, we want to talk today uh, from Genesis chapter 11. So if you're not there, go ahead and grab your Bible. Um, If you uh, want to grab your pew Bible, I don't know what page it is, but I'm guessing it's somewhere in the 1 through 20, somewhere there. And uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 11. And, and this story is something that, I don't know if you've read it before, but it's probably fairly familiar to you. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. Now, most people, and rightfully so, view this story as the explanation of how people, uh, how there came to be a variation in language groups and people groups throughout the world. And it certainly is that. But just like many Old Testament stories, there's, there are other threads that run through the story that can be easy to miss if you don't look very carefully. Old Testament stories, well, New Testament too, but Old Testament stories can be very, very profound if you take the time to really study them and look at them. And that's what we're going to do today. Well, at the beginning of the chapter... it sort of sets the stage by telling us that people had migrated to a plain, uh, migrated east to a plain called Shinar. Now, many archaeologists associate this with the region of Sumer, which is the first known civilization in human history. And it's located in modern-day Iraq, Iran, kind of on the border there between the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Now, I want to start our story by going to verse 3 here, and it'll become clear why we're looking at this passage when we're talking about the gospel of science and technology. Verse 3, after they had moved, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the earth. Okay, now, what I want you to see is right away here in this story, they're using a new technology. Did you notice that? Okay, you see it? Uh, Let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Now you say, that's technology? Come on, that's so so primitive stuff. You bet it's technology. In fact, um, People were not created with the knowledge of how to do this, how to make clay stronger by firing it, by, by, by making it hot and then letting it cool. Okay? They had to figure this out. And in fact, archaeologists consider this to be one of the early, very significant um, uh, technologies that changed the way we do civilization. And it may seem very primitive to us, but to them, it was actually cutting-edge technology that allowed them to do things that they couldn't do before. And so they said, now that we have this technology, let's use it. What did they use it for? Um, And what was their motivation? Okay, let's look at verse 4. It says, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Okay, so we say, good for them. They're building a city. We like cities, we live in a city, um, but not only do they want a city, they actually want a skyscraper, right? That's what they, they want a tower that reaches to the heavens, right? Um, so the tower that they built with the new tech t- technology is something that we call a ziggurat, okay? And I think I've got a picture up there for you, okay? It, you've probably seen these before. It's a, it's a stepped building 
that um, are similar to the pyramids, except they weren't tombs, and they didn't have any hollow places inside. They were absolutely packed solid inside. And so they would actually call them, uh, or or archaeologists call them, uh, man-made holy mountains where heaven and earth met. In other words, through their own effort, they were trying to reach God. But actually, their quest was even more ambitious. Okay, so what was their motivation? Well, they had two motivations. Okay, the first is this, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Okay, they wanted to be the first ones to reach heaven. Uh, The largest ziggurat is found in Mesopotamia, and it's seven stories high or seven steps high. And they're not like our stories. It actually is about 300 feet high, which is equivalent to a 30-story building. Think about like the Fauché Tower. Right? That's, how, that's how tall it was and much, much bigger than that. And so that's, a, that's an impressive feat for ancient people. Okay? But what you'll find is, is it didn't quite do what they intended. In fact, there's a little bit of humor in this story here when you get to verse 7 uh, because it shows the absurdity of the project that they, that they took off on. Okay? So they, they built this impressive tower to reach the heaven, but then God says basically... Um, those guys are doing something down there, but I can't really see. I better go down there and, uh, and see what they're doing, right? So God had to go down to get a better view, okay? So that was their first motivation. They wanted to make a name for themselves. The second motivation for the building we find at the end of verse 4, and it says, otherwise we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And so we want to ask the question, well, why did they not want to be scattered over the face of the whole earth? We'd say, especially as Americans, where's their adventuresome spirit? Where's your manifest destiny, right? Uh, there's all of this earth left to explore, and you just want to sit in a city. And, and so we're kind of ding them for that. But it's actually, um, <clears throat> there's a reason for that. And the reason is, is that ancient people believed that there was just chaos beyond the known world. Okay? They had never seen the rest of the world. They didn't know what was out there and what we don't know We fear. And so they wanted to build a city where civilization could be self-contained and they could protect themselves from whatever chaos was out there in the world. Okay, now, this seems like a pretty natural human instinct. And so it's hard for us to blame them. They wanted to be safe. How could God fault them for that? Well, to see the problem with both of these motivations, we actually have to go back a few chapters to the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. Why would it be a bad thing for them to want to make a name for themselves and to not be scattered throughout the earth? So let's go back to the creation account and, and, uh, and, and figure it out. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the ancient world actually had many different creation accounts from, from all over the place, lots of different societies. But the, but the Genesis account is unique among all of them. Most of them are very similar. They have different names and a few different details. But Genesis is very different than all of them. Now, where every creation account is pretty much the same, is that it starts with chaos. And oftentimes it's described as darkness or the sea. The, uh, the uh, Genesis story describes it as formless and empty or the deep. Okay? In the Mesopotamian account, though, even after creation comes into being, and you could hardly call it creation because in most of the pagan stories, creation is actually an accident. It's not an intentional thing. But in the Mesopotamian account, the, the chaos never ends. 
Of course, they believe in numerous gods, and each of them has their own will. And so in the heavens, there's this clash of wills that's happening, and there's a war that's going on in the heavens. And so there's not really any meaning to life. They're just trying to stay out of the way of the gods. And this is typical of pretty much all of the creation stories, except for the Genesis account. The biblical story is different. Because the biblical story describes God bringing order out of that chaos. Now, there, they, uh, when there are number of numerous gods that war against each other, um, then you have that chaos. But when you have just one God and one will, then you have much more order. And Genesis describes God's creative process as separating one thing from another. So if you go through the list, he separates the day from the night. He separates the water from the land. He separates the land from the sky. He takes all the seed-bearing plants and and organizes them according to their kind. God God is differentiating things. He's taking the chaos and he's bringing order to it. And finally, God separates male from female. And this is how God brings order to a chaotic universe. But this is how everyone brings order out of anything, right? Like if you're trying to clean your room... And there's, you know, toys or uh, clothes or whatever laying all over the floor. What do you do? You start to separate things out and you put them in bins and you separate the toys. And some types of toys go together and some go in other places. And then you put your shirts in one place and put your pants in another place. And then you can find things. And what you do is, is you create order out of chaos by separating things from each other. Now, in the creation story, the ultimate act of separation is the separation between heaven and earth. It's a separation between a transcendent creator and its creation. And the pagan stories didn't have that separation. The gods were were subject to all of the natural causes, and and so they didn't have that separation. And so the first problem with building the tower is the failure to recognize the distinction between heaven and earth, thinking that we can build a tower through our own effort to be able to reach up to the heavens where uh, where God says there's an insurmountable chasm there. But this story also gives another not-so-subtle nod to another part of the creation story, the sin of Adam and Eve. If you remember, if you remember, God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, And we always have questions about this because we say, well, man, why would God not want them to have knowledge of of good and evil. What's wrong? This is not what we try to teach our kids. But I think we've talked about this before, the fact that that's not probably a great understanding of what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. I think if we wanted to translate it better, we could call it the tree of I'll decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. In other words, the temptation of Adam and Eve was to blur the lines between God and humanity. This was the same sin as the Tower of Babel. Okay, where we can make a name for ourselves. In other words, we can become our own gods. Now, this is an attitude that we see from some of the gospel of science and tech crowd. And I'm not going to say this is the case for all scientists. In fact, I would say it's not the case for most scientists. But certainly you see many popularizers of science, people like Steven Pinker, uh, Richard Dawkins, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and others, that preach that that science and technology is going to be the salvation of humankind and that science has made God obsolete, that we can save ourselves. And when God is gone, then we'll be there to take his place. That's the gospel of science and technology. And this is as much a temptation today 
as it was back then. So what was their other motivation? Why was it a bad thing that the people wanted to stay in one place and not be scattered throughout the whole world? Well, again, if we go back to the creation story, we'll find that it was in direct disobedience to another command of God. The very first command that God gave to humanity was, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, you have to look carefully at this because this is really subtle, okay? God's intent for human beings was to fill the earth and subdue it, which means go out into the chaos and bring order for human flourishing. That's essentially what that command means. Bring order that promotes human flourishing. And we're to do that in nature, and we're to do that in society. Whatever we get our hands on, we are to make order of it and allow for human flourishing. As creatures made in the image of God, our calling and purpose is to organize the world to bring about flourishing. Because when we do that, we bring glory to the Creator. And so what we see here is that it's not the technology that's the problem, it was their motivation. Because building a city can be a good thing, I mean, I hope so, we live in a city and we're part of building this society, but they were shirking their God-given calling, their God-given responsibility, and using their technology to make their own plans rather than to follow God's plans. And so what did God do? Well, I think you know the story. The Lord said uh, in verse 6, If as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, this seems really weird to us, right? Because it seems like God is jealous or he's afraid of something. And we'd say, well, what does God have to be afraid of? Can they really, did he really think they could build a tower that would reach the heavens and they could actually supplant his power? Well, no, not really. See, it's not that God was afraid that people would actually replace him as God. It's that he knew the state of our hearts. And he knew that if their power was unchecked, the evil that they could do would be endless. You see, this story is actually a nod to human potential. It's a nod to what we can do as humans. When we put our mind to it, we can accomplish great things. And when that potential is harnessed for God's purposes, it's good. But it's also a story that recognizes our fallenness. And in the hands of fallen creatures, with no regard for God's purposes, our potential for evil is also virtually endless. And so when God confused their language, he wasn't really punishing them. He was actually just limiting the damage that they could do. And notice that that what he did was he scattered them throughout the world, which is what he commanded them to do in the first place. And so it's not really a punishment, it's an action that propelled them into their calling. Now, I suspect that you're already seeing where we're we're going with this, um, why we're looking at this story when it comes to the gospel of science and technology, but let's talk about what this story teaches us about how we today should think about science and technology. Of course, we're only just scratching the surface, Uh, but let me just talk about three things, three statements um, for us about science and technology. First, science and technology are God-given tools that help us understand the natural world. Science and technology are God-given tools that help us understand the natural world. 
And because of that, I don't think as Christians we need to be threatened by science. I don't think we need to be threatened by new technology because faith and science are not opposites, but they inform each other. And there are lots of ways that people say that faith and science interplay with each other. Uh, one way um, is, is to say that, that faith can tell us the who and the why, and science can tell us the how and the what, where, and when. Okay? The, the Oxford mathematician John Lennox uses this analogy. He says this. He says, Aunt Matilda has made a cake, and she has made it for a particular purpose. Now, there are a lot of things scientists could tell us about the cake. Nutrition scientists can tell us about the number of calories in the cake and its nutritional effect. Biochemists can tell us about the structure of the proteins and the fats. Chemists can tell us about the elements involved in their, in their bonding. Physicists can analyze the cake in terms of fundamental particles. Mathematicians can give us a beautiful set of equations to describe the behavior of those particles. We know how the cake is put together. We know all about its constituent parts and the way they relate to each other, and no higher power told us any of that. Science did. But our scientists cannot tell us why the cake was made. Only the Creator can tell us that. See, Christianity tells us that there is meaning and purpose beyond the material world, and that meaning and purpose is not something that we just make up, but it's something that is actually real. Some scientists agree with that, some don't. Some say, well, we just can't know that. But we also believe that creation can give us hints as to whether there is or isn't meaning beyond this world, beyond what we can sense. But science itself cannot tell us whether or not there's purpose. For instance, philosophers and scientists have tried for hundreds of years to give us an empirical basis for morality, um, like Neil deGrasse Tyson's Rationalia. They've tried to discover a morality that could be measured, that could be discovered empirically, that would be the same for everyone at all times, and there would be no questions about it, but they have come up empty. And that's because morality is about the why. Science can't give us the why, and if you don't have the why, then it's really hard to answer the how. But when you have the why, then working it all out becomes possible. I'm not saying it's easy, but it becomes possible. You know, even the Bible doesn't tell us everything there is to know about the why. But what it does is it gives us purpose, and meaning, even beyond the natural world. The second thing is that science and technology are not unqualified goods. They're not unqualified goods. Okay, and this is where purpose makes all the difference. Okay, think back to the story of Babel. See, the issue in the story was not the new technology. The, the technology was something that was neutral in and of itself, but the issue was their motivation. Okay. If they had taken their brick technology and said, how can we bring this along with us and make houses that are stronger and more weather resistant so that when we go out into the chaos and we start building cities out there, we can be more protected, then, then great. But instead, they use that technology to make themselves great and to try to subvert God himself. 
And it's easy to see this kind of thing in the world today. Science has done an incredible amount of good for human flourishing. In fact, many scientists view their knowledge as a way to obey God and to serve humanity. Modern medicine, like we talked about before, has alleviated a great amount of suffering. Agricultural technologies have developed more effective ways to produce food to the point where if, we, if governments had the will, we could feed every single person on the earth. For the rest of their lives. Air travel and digital technologies have allowed us to stay connected over long distances. Some of those things we even use to share Jesus with the world. There's so many great things that have come out of science and technology. But there's also been a great amount of evil and suffering that's been done through science. I mean, think about things like the nuclear bomb and other weapons of mass destruction biochemical weapons. Think about the practice of eugenics. Man, a couple years ago, I, or maybe within the last year, I read that Denmark, Denmark has almost completely eliminated Down syndrome from their society, but not because of anything that they're doing through genetic cures, but by aborting 98% of babies with Down syndrome. Can't imagine. For all of the good things the internet and smartphones have done, there are also downsides too. Maybe the biggest evil is the proliferation of pornography that exploits women and addicts men and is actually addicting more and more women each day. And while social media connects us, the algorithms that are used by these companies are adding to the social distrust and the divisiveness of our society. And of course, we're always dealing with new technologies that come along and they show great promise for good, but people will always find a way to exploit them for personal gain or even just to do evil. Cloning technology, for instance, shows a lot of promise to be able to, to clone organs and, and to replace failing organs in people without the danger of rejection, and yet it raises all kinds of ethical questions. The mapping of the human genome has led to CRISPR gene editing that could eliminate deadly genetic effects. It has that kind of promise, but it can also lead to designer babies and eugenics. The history of science and technology has not been the history of continual progress. It's been a mixed bag that's done great good, but also some of the greatest evils in history. Science and technology without the wisdom and restraint of God becomes destructive. Which leads us to our last one, <clears throat> and it's just this. Is that science should not lead us to arrogance, but to humility and worship. The great downfall of the people of Sumer was their arrogance. It wasn't their thirst for, their no for knowledge, but it was their thirst for power. When we're doing science to see what we can accomplish, oftentimes we end up worshiping ourselves and what we can do. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 1. He said, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And here's the key. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, 
They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. See, while there are many people today, scientists, even atheistic scientists, who will acknowledge the beauty of creation, that doesn't mean that they acknowledge the one who created it. Instead, it leads them to to laud the accomplishments of humanity. But Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You see, if we start with the fear of the Lord, then when we study nature, we come in awe of the Creator. So we close today. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to imagine this for a moment. Maybe the worship team can come up as we're closing here. <coughs> Just close your eyes for a minute. Take a breath. And I want you to imagine yourself traveling through space. If you wanted to get from one end of the universe to the other, it would take you 14 billion years, but only if you were traveling at the speed of light. As you travel, there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand There are 180 billion galaxies in our universe. It's one galaxy called M87 that has a trillion stars. It would take you 31,000 years to count to a trillion. The closest galaxy to us, Andromeda, is 200 million light years away. And even just within our own galaxy, if you hitched a ride on the fastest rocket, humans have ever made that travels 36,000 miles per hour, it would take you 50,000 years to get to the nearest star to our sun. Can you wrap your mind around that? And yet the most complex, least understood object in our universe is the human Imagine yourself in that picture that we painted of the universe and listen to the psalmist from Psalm chapter 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? When David wrote that, he didn't have telescopes didn't have the science to be able to measure just how expansive the universe was. How could we possibly believe, as we look at the universe, that we could do anything that could amount to anything? That we could create our own good news? But see, the good news is that we have a God who stands outside of that universe, the outside of that creation, who knows us by name. He knows everything about us. He loves us. And he came down to earth to live among us, to be one of us.
if that reality doesn't lead you to worship, take a couple of minutes for you to just sit in awe as you consider the works of God. Let your thoughts lead you to humility.